The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today we're really pleased to have uh, John DePauli, who's going to uh, spend some time with us talking about uh, Buddhist art as Buddhist practice. Joan, when, when people like Jack Cornfield were off in the monasteries in Thailand in the 60s, Joan was curating at the Bangkok Museum and has been um, involved. Why don't we just bring the chairs up closer so it'll help to see the slides and stuff. Um, and has, has been an artist and art historian uh, involved in uh, Asian art, particularly for, my gosh, 40 years or so. <laughs> Um, so I'll, I'll just, without, without droning on, uh, I'll just turn it over to her. We have, if, if you're not familiar with IMC, there are bathrooms in the back of the, the hall there, and um, we will have, and, and right, there's, there's tea outside, but, but the, the signs say no tea in the, uh, the hall with the rug. So um, we, we, like to read the signs. And um, I guess I guess that's about it. Well, I guess um, first starting out with intention. The intention of this material is to be of benefit and inspiration to foster curiosity by examination of our preconceptions expectations and prejudice about what we think art is and what it should be uh, and also about I suppose what we think Buddhist practice is and what it should be and the process will be uh, we're going back to the very beginnings we're starting with Buddhist architecture and then we'll go into the uh, Buddhist images uh, when they first began to be made and as they spread in the various directions and we'll see the uh, mixing and matching and borrowing and, and conflation of uh, all kinds of forms and images and symbols so uh, what we'll learn is that nothing is new uh, in terms of what is happening today in, in our mixing and matching of, of uh, practices and symbols. And just uh, before we start, uh, because of my uh, habit that started with my teaching background, I'd like to uh, start out with some mutual definitions. I always start out with one, a definition of what art is, and uh, I spell it with two T's, and that is an awareness of relationships that leads to transformation and then transcendence. And so um, I think that in itself uh, sounds like something I've heard in the Buddhist text somewhere. Um, and also the uh, definition of a visual language. Art is a visual language. And uh, the, uh, as I used to tell my students, the Getty Museum has put together a packet uh, for lobbying to have art taught in uh, K through 
high school and one of the lines in it it, it says uh, approximately 90 plus percent of the American population is visually illiterate and that is that they really have no idea that the visual language speaks the way the written language does and the uh, alphabet more or less of the visual language is uh, form, color, light, line, space, the use of space, time. Uh, so we'll be kind of being aware of that as we go through um, the images. And what we're also, because as when we discussed the topic with Gil, um, he requested Buddhist art as Buddhist practice. And um, so we'll be going back approximately 2,000 years uh, and looking at how the images, first of all, were formed, how they functioned, how they were used, and in some cases when we know, why? <laughs> so um, we'll start out with... Uh, architecture and architecture is an art form in the sense that it uh, the thought behind it is to have the people who use it uh, be very aware of the space and where they are and what what the intention is so uh, in the very first uh, Buddhist architecture, what you had is simply a burial mound of the Buddha. And this particular image is uh, in Kathmandu in Nepal. And it is, uh, there are all kinds of myths and lore about where the Buddha died, but it is one of the sacred sites of, that um, memorializes where, uh, where the Buddha died. Um, very early on, uh, in it's, it's uh, said, although we don't have an exact quote, but because of uh, the practice and action of the, of the people of the time, the Buddha had requested that no images be made of him. He said he wasn't a god, he wasn't any deity, he wasn't anybody to worship. He simply uh, became aware of the means to be free and uh, was sharing it and that was it. So for approximately 300 years, people did uh, honor that request. So that the early architecture w uh, would be a mound uh, to memorialize the death and it would be a place for practice. And the practice was to do walking meditation, circumnambulating the, the, uh, the mound, and simply doing walking meditation. Now, uh, this particular stupa is at Sanchi, and it is the first preserved monumental piece of architecture in Buddhist art. And also, uh, it is a place to do uh, walking meditation outside. It was uh, quite a long time before uh, anything like a temple or anything like 
a structure where you went inside to do practice because uh, as most of you probably know the suttas talk about just going under the nearest tree and uh, sitting and and uh, doing the practice so um, the stupa at Sanchi in India uh, was built about 300 BCE and the core was built by King Ashoka how many people know about King Ashoka <laughs> good uh, he was the first um, major ruler that espoused Buddhism and uh, did quite a bit to uh, make it possible for the teachings to be spread. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. A stupa is a an architectural form that represents the burial mound of the Buddha. It is simply a a mound, and it was first, as you see, grass covered, and then later it was faced with stone and stucco. And in fact, the, uh, we're going to see a diagram fairly soon. The um, idea for the stupa was the uh, burial practices in the ancient Indian tradition were uh, to bury a seated figure. And so that the, the um, crowning monuments you'll see on some of the, some of the uh, images and on the, the Buddha heads themselves uh, come from the symbolism that evolved. You'll see a, um, <laughs> oh, okay. You'll see, um, there's like an umbrella. Uh, this would be the, uh, Triratna, the, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And on some stupas, you'll see seven. Uh, tears on some you'll see 12 and they all refer to various parts of the of the teachings or you'll see the the four noble truths so um, they all correspond to to symbolism and the other uh, aspect of this particular if you would imagine looking at it from above which we do have an image later of one from above it it creates a mandala because you have a circle and then a square and you have the square on the on the top part so um, the main core of this stupa was built by King Ashoka commissioned by him in 300 and uh, we're going to do a little little uh, technology here uh, you see the uh, gateways were built late, much later in 100 BCE and the gateways, um, I have a better one example than this, but uh, the gateways carry uh, the story of the life of the Buddha and the symbolism, but in what we call in art history speak, aniconic images. There are no images of the Buddha himself. Uh, you will see... Uh, Oh, no, too much. <laughs> right up, 
here is uh, the the Bodhi tree under which he was enlightened. Here is the wheel, uh, turning the wheel of the law. Uh, there'll be very often a lotus. Let me see if I can get this particular area. Hmm. Wait a minute. This one-handedness doesn't <laughs> doesn't help. Well, in the center here, you see a stupa. And here is a, difficult to see, but it's a lotus on a throne. So the short of it is that uh, there's just rich with symbolism. And as happened in... Uh, and here you see the wheel of the law on a column. Now, there, the, the tradition of announcing uh, governmental or state uh, kind of uh, laws or uh, some kind of whatever kind of information uh, was important enough to pass on, there would be a column built and then there would be uh, inscriptions on it. And that, that comes from the tradition of the Persians. And so here in this early art form of the, the carvings of the symbolism of the Buddha, you see a mix of styles that come from Persia and come from the native Brahmin uh, animistic Indian traditions. So the early Buddhist art borrows uh, just as Christian art borrowed from the Romans, you can see it very graphically when, when you look at early Christian art. Uh, and the only um, change very often that is made is the placement within the, uh, the environment of the art. For instance, if you go to Aquileia in... Uh, Italy, one of the first Christian churches, the mosaics, will borrow the Roman image of good bounty, which is an angel carrying grapes and wheat, bread and wine. And so that figure is moved into the center of the space, and all of a sudden it becomes a symbol for the Eucharist. Well, here you see the column with the, with the wheel very prominently in the center, um, suggesting the uh, reverence for the teachings. And here also, here on a column with the three wheels, which again re refer to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and the monks uh, at, at each side, and the deer referring to the deer park at Benares, uh, where the Buddha was enlightened. So you read the visual images and in in those days uh, people would be very familiar with them so they'd be reminded uh, of the the teachings essentially of the Dharma this is a, a kind of table um, type of uh, stupa with uh, images as they later uh, were included which is a little teaser for the next uh, section of the images. But it's just uh, a reminder how the stupa gets incorporated into uh, imagery, 
of the the life of the Buddha and uh, just stands as a reminder to practice. Now this... Was their practice associated with the actual making of the images? In other words, was it a form of meditation to make the images? The, you mean the, the builders? Yes. That we don't know. But we do know what the, um, you know, the, the people who were practicing did with it after. And the, of course the designer, the architect himself, the person who would uh, kind of uh, lay out the, the plan and but as far as the workers that you know that was 2300 years ago <laughs> we, we do not know as far as I know we don't know that um, were they was what was there something or someone or relics buried in the stupas or not the early ones. The early ones were, uh, later on, some relics were added. It's always interesting how, you know, things humans seem to need. <laughs> One Thai uh, monk once said that if all of the places that claim to have teeth of the Buddha, he probably had 2,500 <laughs> teeth. So... Um, they, they were added later, but early on, uh, there's no recorded, uh, there's simply a memorial, a place for gathering and doing the practice. Now, this image is uh, of Borobudur in Indonesia. It was built between 750 and 800 AD. Uh, had, who, anybody has been to Borobudur? Well, this, in my mind, and a lot of uh, art historians and architectural historians feel, is one of the monuments that most directly and most successfully uh, allows for the understanding of the practice and allows for the doing of the practice and puts the viewer into a potential state of, of really true understanding. So as you approach it, you see these stupa forms and you see the, um, there are uh, little kind of opening like niches that uh, have sculpture in them. And they're all kind of the stupa form repeated over and over again. So as you, uh, begin on the path as you climb the steps and you begin you you were making a spiral cir circling up to the very top of this monument and at the lower levels the sculpture which is telling the story of the previous lives of the Buddha and the life of the Buddha and uh, various aspects of the teachings the sculpture is very active very uh, packed close together and a lot of movement is involved and so it's like the noisy world and as you are walking along the path you're you're looking this way at all the sculptures 
And this way, your view is blocked so that you're, you, you begin on the path, essentially, and you're, in, you're still on the lower levels in the noisy world. As you go up a little higher, the, the stories of the, the, the incorporation of the story of the Ramayana, and this is another blending of the uh, Hindu and the Buddhist traditions and a little bit of the animistic traditions you can find here and there from the Indonesian culture. So from the very, very beginning, uh, there was a Buddhism would come into an area and it would, would kind of merge and mix and be very comfortable being integrated and synthesized into the uh, spiritual and practical traditions of each culture. So as you are going further and further up towards the top, the images uh, become more um, kind of static and they, become, they will be further and further apart. And as you near the top, you begin to see uh, images of the Buddha with uh, monks and followers and practitioners around him. And when you look back towards the wall, every once in a while you will see an opening. And this is what it looks like. And this particular image also we'll talk about in the afternoon uh, was a, a very interesting influence on some contemporary 20th century artists. And the whole uh, idea here is the form void idea. As you're, you look at this, you begin to, you're not quite sure what, which is form, which is void. Because as you uh, are looking towards all of the sculpture on the other side, if you glance the other way, that's all you see is light and, and dark. You see forms. So... The message also, the intention of the architect is to suggest that while you're on the early stages of the path, uh, the clarity of seeing is uh, more or less dark light form void. It's not, not uh, a, a complete total picture as yet. Then you get to the top and the whole idea of the practice is that as you go around, you're still walking around facing the stupas. And in each one of these stupas, this, there was a stupa here with the same kind of openings uh, cut into it. And there is a Buddha image. And as you walk along, you will see that your mind your, your eye will catch in your peripheral vision a shoulder, part of the head, a little bit of the Ushnisha. And in an instant, your mind puts together the image and you know what it looks like. So there's that flash of insight. And then a lot of people go up and peek in the little cracks and to see whether what they saw is uh, really what uh, is there and uh, you see this is the image and when and they I don't think they purposely uncovered it they may have but uh, uh, it was inside one of these uh, stupa forms so this is the uh, a very traditional uh, Indonesian image and what we'll see uh, 
when we look at the Buddha images is that the, the Buddha image first is made in India and it travels into China and into Southeast Asia and the uh, Indian form is the form uh, the, the more pure yogic Indian form is that which travels into Southeast Asia did um, the form of the Buddha vary within the stupas like he's in like a teaching no they're all the same they're all the same so then when you look out the expanse just absolutely it's almost as if you are in outer space because you've been focusing in on the sculpture as you're going up and on the stupas and coming to see the image of the Buddha and then you turn around and you are just surrounded by spaciousness to say the least so it's quite um, oh yeah Yeah, well, commercialism, right. That's my husband. <laughs> He's my uh, helper with this. So the, the, uh, the whole setup and the practice of uh, the, the practice of Buddhism in this architectural site is just tremendously wedded to the architecture and the architecture kind of leads you and guides you on this on this path so this is the uh, the schematic of how um, there's the uh, over the years from about all oh, about 650 maybe uh, there there has been an, a development of ideas about the characteristics and the proportions of a perfected being of a of a uh, so the buddha image uh evolves based on i think it's 36 major marks and 90 95 or 98 minor marks and they're all, they all have to do with measurements. Uh, it's kind of like Leonardo's man, only this is of the, of the sacred man. And so the, it's, it's shared. These proportional relationships are shared with the Buddha image and with the architecture. So that the, the stupa uh, evolved out of this, the, the later stupas. And uh, the crowning elements, as you'll see, I have a diagram later that will show you uh, the cr how the crowning elements uh, evolved and um, developed rich uh, symbolism. Now, this is the uh, stupa in Nepal, uh, the, where the Tibetans practice, uh, when we were there again 35 years ago, uh, the Tibetans would come... Uh, and stay here and practice during the winter because in, uh, certain certain Tibetan groups uh, were uh, frozen out of their <laughs> villages, so they would come down, and uh, this what became a central stupa. But if you imagine yourself at the very top, looking down, 
you can see that it is the form of some of the Tibetan mandalas. There will be the um, angular square, circle square uh, integration of form. And it's a really a cosmic diagram. So the, the later stupas uh, get much more involved in um, cosmic symbolism. Now this is uh, in Thailand in um, Sukhothai. Um, Sukhothai was for 200 years uh, the classical uh, place of practice and um, uh, center of uh, Thai culture and a very important uh, place for Buddhist art. Um, let's see if I can find the... The dates of the um, prime Thai um, superiority uh, would be 1292 to 1361. And there are a field of stupas and there are some uh, temples in Sukhothai. And this is the first place that, that you see them somewhere you can actually enter. Uh, but not... Um, not much development really until the 17th century of a building where you actually go in. Uh, most of the practice again is uh, done outside. Uh, so I'll just show you some of this, the field of stupas. Uh, and again, you see the, the, the transformation from the geometric form to the round form to the square form and all the various uh, layers of the umbrella, as uh, it's often referred to, uh, will be, again, reminders of the teachings of the um, chain of dependent origination of the uh, Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. And people then would be very familiar with it. Hello? Is it working? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, is the stupa on the left seems very bell-shaped. I just wondered, is that just coincidental or something related to using the bell for, you know? It's, it, it is coincidental. It's not, there, there's no uh, record that, you know, the bell, because the bell in the sense of, you know, a hanging bell in that, in that form uh, wouldn't have been, really popular then because they would use more the bowl and the sounding um, just a few um, images of the uh, and as I I still haven't been able to do this we haven't had time what's wrong with this picture <laughs> does anybody know what's wrong with this picture <laughs> the mudra of the uh, touching the earth, it's, it's reversed. It should be his right hand touching the earth, uh, which is interesting because that's a, a mudra that isn't really recorded in the, in the traditional. Uh, the, the, the mudra of touching the earth or uh, ab ab uh, obeying ma Mara, where the just before the enlightenment uh, 
all the temptations of Mara and the Buddha touched the earth and said this earth witnesses the fact that I have the right to be enlightened I have the right to teach mudra well we'll do that with the Buddha images I have some diagrams of the different positions of the hands and what what it means the Buddha is doing so this would mean this particular mudra where his hand is touching the earth would mean that it was the moment just before his enlightenment and this on uh, some of the surrounding walls Sukhothai has anybody been to Sukhothai it's really a remarkable uh, powerful place um, this uh, is one of the sculpture bar reliefs on one of the surrounding uh, hillsides and it is of the walking Buddha and the Thai uh, sculptural tradition is the only one that has ever done a walking Buddha we'll see some of those with the Buddha image some many more of those to uh, tell you about the iconography of of that um, on that walking Buddha it's almost reminiscent of like some Egyptian kind of uh, reliefs and I was just wondering if there was some kind of influence from that or no uh, not not a direct influence although you know if you go back far enough because the early Indian influence was from the Persians and the Persians and uh, the the Egyptians and Greek influence kind of mixed into all of that tradition so uh, it's it's kind of like art historical DNA you know it it kind of circles around and every once in a while in you know in any family even you'll you'll get something that comes up and if you knew what was going on five generations back you know oh my gosh it hasn't shown up until now but um, the the image the Buddha image itself was uh, and the ties are I think among probably maybe even the the most insistent on staying to the the uh, written description of what a, a spiritual being should look like like one of the description is it should she he should have lion-like shoulders you know very large and uh, powerful shoulders uh, the other aspect of the walking is that the walking is very fluid and that it's almost like walking on water so there's this this kind of gentle and uh, almost dance like I mean the Thai dance also evolved from uh, these traditions and these uh, art historical ideas Uh, is there any uh, uh, way of knowing what motivated them to eventually start making images of the Buddha oh yes <laughs> that that comes in the next section oh. <laughs> the story will be revealed <clears throat> 
And this is at Ayutthaya, which is in the 17th century, uh, where you have a temple complex and a monastery complex in, in Thailand. And just to show you different, different variations on the theme of uh, the stupa. Now, here is the, uh, the evolution, essentially. Uh, you start with the stupa form itself and then uh, it evolves into elongating the, uh, the base, increasing the base, uh, changing the, uh, the form of the umbrella. So it, it's essentially the root of the pagoda. And then this form you'll probably recognize from the Tibetan, uh, a lot of the Tibetan architecture uh, have these forms, and it would be the earth, water, fire, wind, and the void. So, um, is that focused? So that um, essentially gives you a, a very quick um, idea of the evolution of the basic form uh, to very complex and, and uh, uh, layered symbolism that it develops in later time and this is a um, table and a table version of a stupa and in, in fact a lot of people look at it and think this is also a bell but it isn't it's just a reminiscent of the stupa but it's and again the the whole idea of watching our conditioning because you know we're familiar with forms in the west and the bell form is is very very familiar uh, it really wasn't used in in Asia until much later than uh, the the evolution of the stupa but it's kind of a natural and also aesthetic uh, change from simply the burial mound to uh, articulating the form of that mound in different ways that it's kind of our in a way artistic license and uh, change in uh, relationships. Is that a lotus there in the middle? Yes. This would be there. And also at the bottom, you see the lotus petals. Joan, I have a question. Mm -hmm. It's reminiscent on the last slide. I was kind of thinking about the domes, you know, like the Capitol building and that kind of thing. Is there some kind of influence of the dome that we see on governmental kinds of buildings from that kind of image? That's a very interesting thought, but uh, not that I, I know of. But, you know, it would be interesting to look in Western tradition where the dome, like, I mean, the first domes uh, that I can think of were really in the Renaissance. Well, of course, Roman, the, the Pantheon. Uh, so I, it's a possibility. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Because the one thing that I would think if there is an influence, it would go from India to, you know, to Rome. And that would be, uh, you would have to look, if you were looking for that, you'd probably look in the um, goods that would be transported and traded, like the, the textiles and the painted pottery and things like that and very often that's how forms were ignited by those simple little little carrying along of 
a relic or uh, some type of textile or painted pottery. And then somebody gets the idea and then they develop it. So it would be it would be interesting to track uh, where the idea of the Pantheon came from, that that particular domed type of, of building. This uh, form of bell that we have, uh, that we're familiar with in, in our subculture here, bowl shape, is that ancient? Yes, that that would be, you know, because it was multi-use they they would have used it uh, because of the monks bowls and then the uh, evolution to the the sounding of it and the in the making of it uh, and speaking of monks bowls and um, symbolism because that is what evolved to this kind of bronze um, bell but has anybody ever seen a monks bowl being made you know how they they uh, they stamp out um, pieces of tin uh, in like lotus leaves, and they they cut them out. It looks like pinking shears on the side, and then they fold them all up, and then they put them over a, a stone, rounded stone, and hammer them down, and then they spin them with lacquer. Uh, so it's it's a symbolic. That's a very meditative process. Every process in Thailand, uh, where they're making something either for the monasteries or for um, <laughs> they hadn't gotten quite commercial yet when we were there. They were making them mass production, but uh, every process is a meditative process it's it's even making the gold leaf that was applied you saw to the Sukhothai image that was backwards uh, making the gold leaf is a is a meditative repetitive process um, so the monk's bowl initially made um, and the whole idea of the lotus and if you look at some monk's bowls if you see them and the lacquer is not really thick on the outside you can still see the perforations where they meet together where these teeth like uh, come together and then they're hammered so this is um, 17th century Bangkok um, the beginnings of the temples and in the temple complexes uh, it's interesting because there uh, the monks have their the period of chanting and the however the householders don't um, essentially they they sometimes go in and they will light incense and uh, they however their major practice within a monastery uh, is still outside walking there's a courtyard usually behind this temple where there'll be um, row of Buddha images we'll see a little bit of that in Burma uh, with the Buddha images after the break uh, so that the practice is still majorly done outside it, it, it's not they're not like huge cathedrals like you will see in in the Western tradition oh you don't want to do that <laughs> 
And th- this is also uh, late Bangkok style. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Quiet now. We don't want it. <laughs> it wants to go by itself if you... Um, and this is a pavilion in the center uh, of a park, and it uh, the the practice that is recommended for this pavilion has to do with the um, I don't remember the name of the sutta where if you cross the river on the boat you don't carry your boat around once you got there. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Um, that that would be the the idea behind the construction of this pavilion in the center of this water where the buddha said you know if you uh you construct your boat you need a boat to get to uh it, you know the uh kind of insight and investigation but once you get there you don't need to carry it around with you and the logical evolution of the as as you saw in the diagram the stupa to the pagoda the whole idea of the multi um of course the japanese uh once you get to the japanese pagoda uh the aesthetic uh incorporates although the thai temple does also but it incorporates the sky and it incorporates the entire uh, place. And that we'll get to when we talk about 20th century art, uh, where the artists were very influenced by this idea that you did not have a, a, a stopping in just a place, and the place around the structure would be just unimportant space. But it's all incorporated so that the intention of the work of the pagoda is also to uh, incorporate the, the sky so that these forms, these forms here, uh, the, the triangles and the, the reference to them, all are very, very significant. Um, so we'll we'll get into that uh, in the afternoon and the way that idea influenced a lot of Western artists. And then, of course, in Zen architecture, uh, you have a an emphasis on the concept of emptiness. And, of course, Emptiness goes back to the Theravadan teaching of anatta or non-self. Uh, emptiness, spaciousness, uh, the relationships of form and void. And the Japanese tea house uh, becomes the quintessential example of the, the aesthetic. So you see uh, the spaciousness, the, the focus on uh, small parts, and the whole process of the practice of the tea uh, is to be aware of the space, of the forms, of the void. And uh, things change as you look. If you're in a garden, if you've been to a tea ceremony, you know that the shoji screen can open just slightly and you see just a part of the garden and in a way it's the same type of practice that happens at Borbador because it's that while you're 
in this stage of the path, you never see the whole thing. So you And the gardens are all designed so that you never see the whole thing at any time you move uh, in a slight direction, everything changes. And of course, the more subtle the forms and the more empty they are, the more you're very aware of that change. And I just want, in the previous slide, I just want to point out that that uh, very organic shape on the post is. Uh, is there something to say about that other than that it's lovely? Well, um, the is anybody familiar with the aesthetic concept in Japanese tradition of wabi sabi? Uh, that. The, in the uh, Japanese tradition, there is uh, the respect for natural forms in all of their evolution and development, from seed to, uh, to death, essentially. And there, uh, this organic sense, there's a very highly refined uh, aesthetic that develops for uh, the the natural organic flow of form and there's lots and lots of poetry and writing about the fact that no column no natural column that could ever be built by humans could ever uh, interpret the the natural growth pattern of uh, a a, uh, a column that could be extracted from the forest so and there's also this forest idea of of merging in and out even though there is an interior space in the Japanese tea house you bring the outside in and so that the and the gardens around it are highly highly stylized so that it's almost more natural inside than the garden outside so it's there's lots of paradox and um and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we um, get into the tea bowls. Everything else is very straight. Other than that one post. Well, that again, that would be. Uh, let's see if the next one has that. Uh, that would be the the idea. If you notice the also the variation, you have the the uh, natural trunk of the tree, the bamboo. And over in this area, I think you can see the arrow there, <laughs> is what's called the tokonoma. And the tokonoma ha usually has a flower arrangement or some piece of pottery and a uh, scroll that hangs seasonally. It's changed for each ceremony or for each intention of, of the tea. Um, and so that... Uh, once you again as i said every time you change your position or you change the way you look you see uh, another aspect and nothing is completely straight i mean there's nothing that is a a line that is completely straight it's uh they're all uh, once you if you would actually get up close and look at them they're they're kind of very organic uh the flow and this is looking down at the interior space of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And the, of course, ever since 
Frank Lloyd Wright in the Bauhaus in the 20th century, you have a tremendous influence uh, from Japanese aesthetic and from uh, tea house aesthetic and Buddhist aesthetic in, in general. If you look at even this image, the balance here is... Is that Richard Serra? I don't think so. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, well, we'll talk about that at, uh, after the break when we talk about 20th and 21st century Buddhist art. Uh, and this is, does anybody recognize this? <laughs> the Rothko Chapel in Houston. Um, and the, the space inside is also very much derived from the influence of uh, Japanese aesthetic and use of space uh, and the practice itself in here. Rothko uh, also consciously intended the practice to be uh, one of uh, gradual uh, awakening. Uh, and if you've been there and you spend any time in there I was in there for about an hour and a half and the paintings changed almost minute by minute uh, depending on the light uh, source because again the opening and that kind of reminded me of the Pantheon in Rome the opening in the in the uh, ceiling so we have uh, come to the end of the uh, architecture and we'll take a break. And oh, any more questions? We'll take a little break and then we're going to uh, look at the evolution of the Buddha image and um, why it began to be made and um, what happened along the way.